Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, sitting in for Jonathan Strickland today for iHeartRadio's International Women's Day podcast takeover. Uh, Some of y'all might remember me from the way back. I was Jonathan's co-host here for a minute when I was just a tiny little baby podcaster, Um, or from Forward Thinking, another show that we worked on together, or from other podcasts that I work on myself, or you might find my voice new and strange. Um, But in any case, hello. Thank you for existing and for being here today. In honor of International Women's Day, I wanted to do this episode about ethics in technology, and uh, specifically in artificial intelligence, you know, about the ways that tech can, can hurt or help the quest to make the world more equitable. And you might be going, aren't computers essentially, or even quintessentially, unbiased? Um, you know, a program doesn't have feelings, it only has code that it executes. And of course, that's true. But the humans who write the code do have biases, some conscious, some unconscious. And so the ways that we tell programs to work can carry those biases. Uh, One example that I always think of, and you might have seen headlines about this back in like 2009, 2010, about how um, digital cameras can behave in biased ways. Uh, There was this whole thing where some webcams weren't tracking and focusing on the faces of black users. And some other cameras were flagging photos of Asian subjects because the software insisted that their eyes were closed. And in both of these cases, it was clear that the programs had been trained on photos of a vast majority of white faces. Uh, The programs didn't know what to do with skin that reflected light differently or with eyes that, that were a different shape. And I will say, like, this is not a purely digital issue. Um, This sort of thing has been an issue in photography for as long as photography has existed. Um, Film stocks were originally created with only white subjects in mind. And it wasn't until, like, furniture and chocolate companies started lodging complaints with Kodak in the 1960s and 70s that Kodak started to adjust their films to better capture different shades of brown. But... On this, like, small example scale, you know, like, that sucks for the users of these cameras. But these problems are really compounded when you start getting into big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has the capacity to totally change our world for the better. Um, Everything from making our energy grid more efficient and more adaptable, uh, preventing tragic outages like we saw in Texas recently, to helping farmers make the most of their resources and getting more fresh foods to people who currently don't have good access to that, uh, to making autonomous vehicles possible, to letting your doctor just like real quick consult every case of a disease ever while making a decision about how to proceed with your treatment, uh, to, I don't know, stopping the thing where you always get served ads for the thing you just bought. (sighs) Yes, I like that t-shirt. That's why I just bought it. Uh, Okay. Uh, Anyway, it's, it's it's not as simple as um, Asimov's laws of robotics when you start getting into uh, the wider consequences of AI. Um, And, and, you know, um, a a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm, which of course didn't even work in the fictional world that, that Asimov was setting up. 
and robo-ethics is totally a thing that is also not simple. And of course, it is ideal if, you're, if your Roomba or your autonomous car does not kill you. Um, but we're talking about designing these AI systems that will change the way of life for whole societies. Um, it is a big deal, and it could lead to some big problems. So we need to talk about how to train your algorithm. Um, these big systems start small, with designers training algorithms with data sets. So right from the start, um, you have the issue of what data is going in, and within that data, uh, what's being paid attention to and what's being ignored. And now I'm not saying that these designers are like all mustache-twirling villains out there to do evil, but they are human. You know, we're each moving through the world with our own set of experiences, and there are so many other experiences that we're bound to fail to take some of them into consideration or, or to or to misunderstand some of those circumstances. Which is why it's so important to have people from a variety of backgrounds and on these projects. And right now, diversity in tech is uh, not great. Um, back in 2014, a whole bunch of big tech companies got together and pledged to increase diversity in their workforces um, and make their results public. And every year, these reports come out, and the numbers haven't changed that much in some of these categories in six years. Uh, women are better represented now, um, or as of 2020 rather, um, having gone from around 15% of the workforce to around 23% of the workforce at places like Google and Facebook. But the only company that showed a comparable jump in um, uh, Black employees was Amazon, and they're including their distribution center employees. And other categories of underrepresented people, like people with disabilities, aren't even being reported in all of these public results. Um, but studies show that they're dramatically underrepresented in the workforce, which just isn't great. You know, when we're designing technology like self-driving cars that will need to take into consideration the movement of wheelchair users. And there are, unfortunately, instances of programs being made specifically with bias, um, like in 2014 to 2016, when the Boston Police Department used this social media surveillance system to flag posts made by regular citizens who, um, who used certain terms. For example, uh, colloquial Arabic Muslim words, or um, words like Ferguson, or protest. And we are all in this, whether we like it or not. Um, again, just as one example, everything that we do online from, you know, what we type into search engines and social media sites to our location data to how we move our mice or like tap at our smartphones, all of that has the potential to be recorded and collected and sold and referenced and cross-referenced and used to track us in any number of ways. But AI systems are a huge industry. Uh, worldwide, business spending on artificial intelligence hit about $50 billion in 2020, and it's expected to more than double that by 2024. Uh, retail, banking, media, governments, all kinds of industries are investing in this. And all of this is fairly new, but of course, the field of ethics, and even computer ethics, is not new at all. Uh, so... 
Ethics and technology have always been tied together uh, because every time that, that we humans create some new technology that changes our world and how we interact with it and each other, we have to reconsider our world and our interactions. You could even argue that in that way, like, like philosophically, ethics is itself a type of technology. But I'm not going to go that deep today. I'm backing away from that precipice. Uh, so let's skip ahead from, you know, the beginning of human consciousness um, to the 1940s, because that's when digital computers were being invented and in the field of cybernetics got started. Uh, that's the science of information feedback systems, right? Um, cybernetics was pioneered by MIT mathematician Norbert Wiener and some of his colleagues as they were working during World War II to develop an anti-aircraft cannon that could, uh, that could A, detect and track a fast-moving airplane, and then B, extrapolate the airplane's probable location in the immediate future and aim, um, and then C, signal the firing mechanism to fire. And that internal communication that the machine was doing really got Wiener thinking. In uh, 1948, he published a book called Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. And in it, he mused that these new computing machines could very easily become central nervous systems for processing all kinds of data from all kinds of instruments, and that that potential was huge. He compared it to nuclear weapons. Um, he wrote, Long before Nagasaki and the public awareness of the atomic bomb, it had occurred to me that we were here in the presence of another social potentiality of unheard of importance for good and for evil. Oh, Wiener expounded on this in a book he published in 1950 called The Human Use of Human Beings, which, which basically predicted that integrating computer technology into society was going to be another revolution, just as sweeping and messy as the Industrial Revolution. And he tried to lay out a bit of groundwork for how to not, like, totally bork it up. Spoiler alert, uh, people borked it up anyway. There wasn't a whole lot more work done in the field of computer ethics until the 1960s and 70s, when computer-based crime and information security and privacy concerns had already become a problem. So by the mid-60s, corporations and the government had both begun collecting just giant amounts of personal data about U.S. citizens in literally massive computers. I guess, I guess all computers are literally massive in that they have mass, but okay, you know what I mean. Um, uh, from, you know, medical records to military records to legal documents to shopping habits. And this journalist by the name of Vance Packard wrote a book called The Naked Society, published in 1964, about the inherent privacy issue of having that information collected and available for instantaneous reference. Uh, something of an uproar ensued, um, focusing, as Packard's book did, on the U.S. government's use of citizens' information. Um, and it led to just a whole bunch of uh, data transparency legislation over the next decade, uh, the Freedom of Information Act, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, all designed to make sure that citizens are able to know what data is being collected about them by the government and how it's being used. 
And to be fair, at that time, most computational power was in the hands of the government. But this legislature and and conversation really ignored the activities of private corporations. And it never really questioned the ethics of collecting all of that data in the first place. Um, And this is apparently like a very American thing, the concept that information is inherently good and like more is better. Um, But that is a rabbit hole for another day. But it's not that people weren't thinking about the ethics. Uh, One important thing that happened around the same time was that a researcher by the name of Don Parker, who was looking into crime being committed via computers, uh, Parker proposed to this leading industry professional organization, the Association for Computing Machinery, that they develop a code of ethics for their members. And they were like, yeah, cool, you you do that. Um, so he headed up a committee, and the ACM adopted their first code of ethics in 1973. They've updated it, I think, like about once a decade since then, um, with the most recent update being in 2018. It's really thoughtful. Um, one of my favorite bits from the intro, it specifies that it's, quote, not an algorithm for solving ethical problems. Rather, it serves as a basis for ethical decision-making. Um, You can read it if you're into that sort of thing by going to acm.org. And then, back to our timeline, in 1976, uh, Joseph Weizenbaum, who had created the psychotherapy-mimicking chatbot Eliza a decade earlier, he published his book, Computer Power and Human Reason, From Judgment to Calculation. And this book was a response to the response that he'd gotten from people to his chatbot, Eliza. And I know that Jonathan has talked about this chatbot on the show before. Um, It comes up a lot in discussions about the Turing test and and how convincingly computers can approximate human communication because it was one of the first that was effective. Um, The thing is, though, that Weizenbaum designed Eliza as a demonstration of how bad computers inherently are at this type of communication. But he got the opposite response from people who tried the program out. In talking to, I mean, you know, typing with um, Eliza about their psychological problems, people felt like Eliza understood them, even when they knew it was a robot. Um, So Weizenbaum was kind of like, whoa, wait. Uh, And so he wrote this book to to really explain the differences between computation and human intelligence and to assert that ethics are imperative in the design of artificial intelligence because people will forget that computers do not have the understanding, the, the, the wisdom, the moral and emotional consideration of human beings. And uh, this is when um, things really started picking up in the field of computer ethics. Um, Also in 1976, this professor who was teaching medical ethics at the time, Walter Boehner, noticed how computers were, were complicating that field. And he became the first person in academia to really, like, decide computer ethics should be its own field of research and application. Um, he, he wrote that computer technology was creating whole new ethical concerns that needed to be taken into consideration. Um, so he popularized the term computer ethics, uh, did speeches and workshops and everything. And jumping ahead to 1985, the first major textbook on the subject was published uh, called Computer Ethics, edited by one Deborah Johnson. 
And Johnson disagreed with Maynard. Um, She argued the computers weren't creating new problems, but rather exacerbating old problems around things like privacy, ownership, power, and responsibility. We will get into what the future may hold after we get back from a quick break. Welcome back. As the computer industry grew with a consumer adoption of home computing, with with internet access growing, and both the capacity and and the ubiquity of computers just absolutely snowballing, um, the field of computer ethics exploded. Um, And more and more groups formed to to help everyone make sense of all of this. For example, the um, Electronic Frontier Foundation was founded in 1990. They're um, that advocacy and activism group that's dedicated to defending civil liberties as technology advances. And, okay, this is kind of a side quest, but I, I did not know this. They actually formed up in response to the federal seizure of a bunch of computer equipment belonging to Steve Jackson Games. Yep, the company that brings us apples to apples and munchkin, lots of other good stuff. So what happened here what was that was that there was this um, Bell South digital document that explained how the emergency 911 telephone system worked, and it leaked. And the U.S. Secret Service was concerned that having that info out there was a security concern, you know, that hackers might overwhelm the system, um, something like that. So so the the Secret Service was conducting raids, tracking this document's digital distribution. Steve Jackson was innocent, um, but they got this warrant, conducted this raid, took all his stuff, um, and wound up accessing and deleting a bunch of personal bulletin board messages from the company's website in the process. And now the Secret Service, you know, didn't find anything, so they gave the equipment back and didn't press charges. But Steve Jackson was like, no, no, no. Y'all almost tanked my business. You violated the privacy of my bulletin board users. We are pressing charges against you. But there was really no um, civil rights organization that was prepared to take on the case due to the uh, technological complexity of the issue. So the EFF formed in order to bring that suit to court. Um, And that was the first time that a court recognized that email should have equal protection to uh, to, to, to phone calls or any other kind of communication. So so thanks, thanks Steve Jackson, for for everything. Um, The EFF has done a whole lot of important stuff. Um, In 1996, they got encryption technology taken off the list of nationally regulated weapons. That's a separate episode, though. Anyway, so side quest over, back to the main quest. Um, All of this computer stuff exploded, and the field of computer ethics specialized. Um, So now you've got internet ethics, information systems ethics, uh, robot ethics. And and I I do want to say all of this does coincide with work being done in in other fields, uh, engineering and information science. Like, I don't want to imply that computer technology was the only field that had been uh, uh, working with and contributing to these these ethical theories and the practical application of them. But uh, like I was saying at the top of this episode, one of the really interesting specialties to me is in AI ethics, because it does have such potentially sweeping effects and also because it keeps coming up in the news for less than rad reasons. Uh, So you have probably seen headlines over the past few years about algorithms gone wrong. Um, 
There's there's the story from 2016 where ProPublica found that the software used by some courts to determine the risk of criminal defendants committing further offenses and therefore to determine whether to detain those defendants until trial or or what kind of bail to set for them, um, at least one of those algorithms called Compass regularly found Black people riskier and white people less risky, even when everything else about the defendant's cases were comparable. And this kind of issue crops up in discussions about hiring software as well. Because of a lack of care in in their design, these programs that automatically sort through resumes have ranked applicants who have woman-sounding or or black-sounding names as lower in consideration. And then there's Google's search algorithms. Um, From 2014 to 2018, there were all of these headlines. Reverse image searches using photos of Black people were returning images of gorillas because no one had taught the system how to consider dark skin tones in people. Or if you searched the the seemingly innocuous term Black girls, the, the first page results out of trillions of web indexed pages included porn. Or there was research into the search history of the white guy who killed nine black people in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. It's highly likely that he was radicalized, at least in part, due to the way that Google search works. Um, It's taking into account location and demographics about him and other searchers in his area. Google search returning white supremacist propaganda when he searched the term black-on-white crime. By the way, related to this, you can make Google give you less specialized search results, and I am looking into that and doing it as soon as I finish recording this, this because it is continually infuriating to me just, just when I'm doing my reading for, for podcast episodes like this and trying to find stuff that isn't like a restaurant in my area if I'm talking about a larger concern. Anyway, um... Also, uh, remember how I was talking about the uh, the flaws in programming of digital cameras and how they sometimes have trouble discerning uh, specific features of people of color? Um, you know, extrapolate that out to how facial recognition software is used with surveillance footage by police departments. Um, the software is more likely to make a mistake in identifying a Black person's face because the software just isn't as good as seeing that face because of how it was programmed, which can lead to false identifications and thus wrongful harassments and arrests. Um, Georgetown University put out a whole report on this in 2016 called The Perpetual Lineup. That report found that half of Americans have photos in police facial recognition databases, by the way, um, which includes just lots of people with no criminal backgrounds. And of course, even if we fix those algorithms, that that isn't going to fix the fact that communities of color are subject to more surveillance in the first place. More recently, there have been headlines and a whole discussion about this new rule that was issued in September of 2020 by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And this rule essentially makes it super difficult for banks or landlords or homeowners insurance companies to be sued for denying housing to people of color if an algorithm was used to make that determination based on the concept that algorithms cannot be racist. 
The rule was immediately challenged, um, and in January of 2021, President Biden issued an executive order directing the Department of Housing and Urban Development to to examine the rule's effects. But hoof, hoof, um, and you know it's it's not it's not easy. None of this is easy. Um, in order to build a non-biased artificial intelligence system, we. Um, I mean, like like humans, not like, you know, you and me, dear listener. Um, w- we need to change the systems that lead to the building of artificial intelligence. We need to examine how the, the design and programming is taught, um, how companies conduct their business, how policy is written, and and who has access to seats at all of those tables. I mean, it's also not technically easy. Like when you build and train these systems, just adding more diverse data isn't magically going to make the system create better, less biased rules. It, it might create conflicting rules. Um, you know, it, it is expensive in terms of time and effort and and just pure physical energy to to do this work. The pitfalls of not doing this work are tremendous. You know, it can cause measurable hurt in people's lives. And as one Dr. Debbie Chatra, a material science engineer, has said, any sufficiently advanced neglect is indistinguishable from malice. But the benefits to doing this work are equally measurable and tremendous. One consideration moving into the future is how to square the very concept of ethics with an increasingly multicultural digital world. Um, you know, not not everyone on the planet grew up with European philosophy going back to the ancient Greek as the basis of their ethical conception. And we also have to acknowledge that, um, you know, whatever a culture's philosophical basis, it's probably rooted in some biases of its own. Um, just for example, uh, just throwing it out there, if your society has coded emotions as feminine and feminine as bad, um, then you're probably not giving emotional harm as much weight, if any weight, as, as physical harm in your considerations of justice. Um, and you can see the effects of this in things like the care that we give our veterans with physical injury versus veterans with PTSD, um, or just the general ways that our society handles mental health versus physical health, or, or any kind of neurodivergence. All of this work in artificial intelligence and and the ethics thereof is really requiring us to redefine intelligence, to to fully consider what we mean by human intelligence, what logic and emotion and experience go into that, and, and the ways in which machine intelligence might differ. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy references Minsky's um, 1986 book, The Society of the Mind, saying, we do not wish to restrict intelligence to what would require intelligence if done by humans. And, and of course, that's true. Um, AI can do stuff that we can't. That, that's arguably the whole point. Um, but it all has to be done with the best of what human intelligence can be in mind. And I'm just now realizing that like, I might have written a forward-thinking episode instead of a tech stuff episode, but, but that's what I've got for you today. So if you have enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more from me, um, you can find me on uh, podcasts like Brain Stuff. It's a, it's a daily short form general science and culture show um, or Savor, 
which is a food science and history show, or American Shadows, which um, is produced with Aaron Minkie's company Grim and Mild. Um, it's it's a show about some of the uh, darker bits of American history uh, and ways in which even those dire situations um, had light brought to them. I would like to give a quick shout out to my friend uh, Damian Patrick Williams. He works in this field and has made me more familiar with a lot of the concepts that I talked about today. Um, you can find lots more from him at afutureworththinkingabout.com. This podcast is produced by Tari Harrison, and severe thanks to her for being so kind and accommodating um, in helping me with this episode. The executive producer is Jonathan Strickland, and thanks to him for trusting me with his podcast for a day. Thanks to you for listening, and he'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 